Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Transatlanticist Politics Podcast at the American Centrum in Hamburg, Germany. As always, I am your host, Andrew Sola. So by now, we all know that Russia invaded Ukraine on the 24th of February. President Putin's goal was to eliminate the current Ukrainian government and replace it with a Russia-friendly Quisling. However, the Ukrainian army forced back the first wave of the invasion, and now we are in the second phase. As we record this podcast, it is the 96th day of the war. There is still heavy fighting in the Donbass region, and we can all think about this question. Is there an end in sight? It's very difficult to tell. The invasion has raised many hugely important questions about European security, global trade, and international politics. The so-called rules-based international order is in peril. But today we want to focus specifically on the role of Germany in this story. How have German-Russian relations developed after World War II, and then to the Cold War, and then on to the reunification of Germany, and beyond? How did Germany find itself in the position of being over-reliant on Russian oil and gas? What do Germans in both the East and the West, there's still a difference, think about Russia? And what do they think about NATO? And lastly, as this bloody war rages, are those criticisms of German policies that we've probably seen in the news, are those criticisms of German policies towards Russia fair, or are they unfair, or maybe a little bit of both? We'll assess those criticisms today. This is all way too much for one person to handle, so I'm grateful to have a wonderful guest returning to the Transatlanticist to talk us through the complexities of German politics. Christina Neuhaus. Welcome, Christina. Thank you. I'm glad to be back. It's great that you're back. Christina Neuhaus has been reporting from the halls of power in both Germany and the United States for the last 20 years. In the U.S., she worked for Deutsche Welle Radio in Washington, D.C., as well as Oregon Public Radio. Upon returning to Berlin, she became politics editor for Die Welt, and then political correspondent for the DAPD. More recently, she has held a number of positions with Agence France Presse, including foreign affairs editor and economics correspondent. Since 2018, Ms. Neuhaus has covered the German federal government for the AFP. Her portfolio includes the finance ministry, the justice ministry, and the education ministry, and she also covers two of the major political parties, the CDU and the FDP. So, before we do our deep dive, I already mentioned a couple of abbreviations there, CDU and FDP. I think it's important just to remind our audience of some of these acronyms, which I'm sure we'll be using throughout our discussion today. And I'll also mention a couple of the key political players, just so we can mention them at the front, and we'll keep mentioning them throughout the episode. 
So first, the CDU, the Christian Democrats. This is the dominant center-right party in Germany. The majority of chancellors were from the CDU party, and of course, Merkel, who just resigned or retired as chancellor, was the last CDU chancellor. The SPD, these are the Social Democrats. This is the dominant center-left party. It's the party of uh, one important figure in German history, Willy Brandt, which we will talk about shortly. And the current chancellor, Olaf Scholz, is a member of the SPD. But the current government is a coalition government between uh, the SPD and then the Greens and the FDP. Greens. The Greens have no abbreviation or acronym. They're just the Greens. That's easy. This is the Growing Environmental Party. Again, uh, part of the current coalition government. And the key names here that we need to remember are Annalena Baerbock, the current foreign secretary, and Robert Habeck, the current vice chancellor. So remember the names Baerbock and Habeck. Lastly, we have the FDP party, the Free Democrats, essentially libertarians, fiscally conservative, socially liberal, and the key name here is Christian Lindner, who is the Minister of Finance in the coalition government. So remember those names and acronyms. Next, what I have here in my notes is give a canned history of Germany since the end of World War II in 90 seconds. Well, that's easy. <laughs> who wrote these notes? <laughs> I'm firing my intern, namely me. Okay. So how did we get here? So just, just let's remember... World War II ends in 1945. Germany is invited into four regions, one controlled by France, one controlled by Britain, one controlled by the U.S., and the last controlled by the Soviet Union. So these split up, right? The German, French, and British regions become West Germany, and the Eastern region becomes uh, the DDR, the DDR, or East Germany, behind the Iron Curtain. So the first chancellor of Germany was a CDU chancellor, and this is West Germany, uh, by the name of Konrad Adenauer, a huge figure in German history post-war. And then the following two chancellors were Erhard and Kiesinger, also uh, CDU chancellors. A number of important things went on between 1949 and 1969, of course, but one highlight here is West Germany does join NATO in 19. 55. So, three chancellors, 20 years of CDU control of, of West Germany. So, the first figure I want you to talk about is Willy Brandt, the first SPD chancellor of Germany. He was the chancellor from 69 to 74, and he's associated with, with this word Ostpolitik. So, Christina, can you tell us a little bit about Willy Brandt and Ostpolitik? Sure. So the big change between those three Christian Democratic chancellors that you just mentioned, and then Willy Brandt, the Social Democrat, the big difference is that he, for the first time, said, okay, we have to accept the facts here. It's been 20 years, like you said, since these two Germanys, these two countries basically have been established. This isn't going to change 
in the near future, this is what we have now. We have the Warsaw Pact, we have this Eastern Bloc to deal with, and we have the West on the other side, we have the Cold War. So what do we do about it? So he decided to look for ways to actually work with Eastern Germany and more generally with Eastern Europe to have a peaceful coexistence and to have some sort of cooperation. So for especially Adenauer, but also the other two guys that you mentioned before, the integration into the West was the most important thing. That's why they decided to join NATO. That's why they decided to join the the precursors of the European Union. And this, this integration was their main goal, partly to be more safe, right? Because they wanted essentially a big brother to watch over them because they didn't know what the Soviet Union was going to do. And it was the Cold War and there were these two antagonists. And so their idea was mainly that if German reunification was ever to happen, it was going to be from a position of Western strength. Like the West, the Western bloc would be so strong that the, the Eastern bloc would somehow collapse and then Germany would be able to reunite. And Brandt had a different view. He said, well, no, this, this is what the world looks like now and we have to deal with that. And that's what this word Ostpolitik that you just mentioned, what this term stands for, to accept that there is this kind of world order, whether, whether you like it or not, and to move forward and to change things, you have to actually talk to the other side and seek some sort of cooperation. Now, everything you just described reminds me a lot of how many people explain current German policies or recent German policies to Russia and to Putin specifically. Right. This idea that we have to accept the world as it is, not how it should be or how we'd like it to be. And of course, since there is an opposing side, we need to negotiate with it, deal with it. Um, and not sort of deny its existence. Right. We're going to come back to this for sure concept quite a bit today. That was a fantastic overview. Okay, so my next chancellor, we're racing, racing through German history, uh, <laughs> Schmidt, SPD, from 1974 to 1982. And this is a figure I don't know much about. How, what would you say his role in, in uh, what was to come, the fall of the Berlin Wall, you know, I guess seven years after he ended his chancellorship. Did he have an important role in the end of the Cold War and German politics regarding the Russia question? Well, I mean, he wasn't in office that long. He, he, or he, what, he was in office for quite a while, but not all the way until reunification, because then, of course, Helmut Kohl came in in between. But he sort of went on a kind of double track, right? So he also tried to have better relations with Eastern Germany. He actually went there and met with Erich Honecker, who was the head of state in, in uh, Eastern Germany at the time. That was a big deal. That was only the third time that the heads of government of Eastern and Western Germany actually met so he tried to do that and have yeah have this better relationship um, with the East. And at, at the same time, he also supported uh, controversial decisions that NATO took at the time, like the big the big thing that is still, yeah, in, in German, at least in Germany, that's still a thing that's 
talked about is the NATO double track decision that was in uh, 1979. That was the decision of NATO to say, okay, we want to work with the Soviet Union, with the Warsaw Pact, to actually reduce the number of missiles that are that are that we both have basically aimed at each other. But NATO also said, if we can't get this done within a certain time frame, then we are going to put more nuclear missiles into our territory, especially the territory that is closest to the Soviet Union. That included Western Germany, right? And so that was a hugely controversial debate in Germany. And Schmidt actually was for it. And in the end, the German parliament supported this decision, I think, actually with a two-third majority. And um, yeah, so he tried to do both, right? He tried to work together, but also have this kind of determined, that's, that's what he did in this regard. So it sounds like he carried on a little bit of Brandt's legacy of Ostpolitik while also yes. keeping the faith with NATO in the West. Yeah, exactly. So now we get to Helmut Kohl, Chancellor from 1982 to 98. And this is when a lot of huge things happen. Right. The Berlin Wall falls in 1989. Reunification happens in 90, and Germany, East Germany joins NATO, whatever that kind of means in that sense, after reunification. Uh, can you talk a little bit about Kohl and his approach to Russia? Yeah, I mean, he he had a good relationship with the Soviet Union and then Russia. He had he had some famous meetings with Gorbachev. Like I don't know if you've ever seen those pictures of these two men in cardigans <laughs> sitting somewhere in a field. It's very famous. So he did have a good personal relationship and it's it's very important to understand that without the agreement of Moscow German reunification would not have been able to happen in this way, right? That that's a huge that was a huge deal and it actually it's very important for understanding everything that happened afterwards because there's this sense of gratitude towards the Soviet Union or then later Russia that they allowed us to reunite, right? So that's true, especially for Kohl, but also f for the governments that came later, this, this sense of gratitude towards Moscow, that reunification actually happened and didn't end in a bloodbath with, um, I don't know, Soviet tanks taking over Berlin. Like that, would, that seemed like an actual possibility at the time, right? We didn't know. He did manage to get that done sort of smoothly and what happened was it's it's what you said like the eastern part joined the western part of germany like reunification kind of sounds like we we came together and built something new but what really happened was that in almost all parts of life and economy and society the eastern part of germany took over the western model Right. There are very, very few exceptions to that. And um, yeah, so now there now it's 1990 and there's a unified Germany once again. OK, so the next figure who is still alive today and super controversial right now for many, many reasons is Gerhard Schroeder. So after 
Cole's chancellorship from 82 to 98. We have Gerhard Schroeder. Now we're back to an SPD leader, SPD chancellor, chancellor from 1998 to 2005. And why don't you explain a little bit about his approach while he was chancellor, but then maybe even more importantly, what he did after being chancellor. Right. Yeah. So he actually formed a close personal friendship with Vladimir Putin. This was important back then and is still relevant today. He he tried to have a good close relationship with Russia. The economic aspect of this is very important. So Schröder was the one who started Nord Stream 1. That is a gas pipeline that goes from Russia through the Baltic Sea directly to Germany, bypassing Poland, Ukraine, other countries in between, and which was which was kind of an offensive move to to the Eastern European countries. But uh, Schröder and Putin were like, well, this is beneficial to Germany and this is beneficial to Russia. Who could have anything against that in our countries? <laughs> So this is important because Germany has a very big reliance on Russian oil and gas and coal, still does. Like now that the war has started and everything is turned upside down, we're trying to reduce this dependency, but it's it's still very relevant. So Schröder is a big part of that. Like he, he sees good trade relations and energy was a big part of that because we don't have that many natural resources here. Russia has a lot, so win-win, right? And um, yeah, if you, I don't know if you've ever seen footage of Schröder and Putin together, like they're best buddies, basically, or they were back then. And he still has a relationship with him. There was a controversial trip he made to Moscow after the beginning of the war in Ukraine, Nobody really knew that was happening. The German government was apparently not really in the loop on that. And and nothing came of it either, right? So I don't know what exactly he wanted to do there. His statements on the war have been, well, I'd, controversial would even be euphemistic to call it. So he has been saying, well, you can't go to other countries and invade them. But, and then he started blaming NATO and everything. It was, it, yeah. So he's he's a bit of an embarrassment now to Scholz because they're in the same party and the Social Democrats are actually trying to throw him out of the party. But that's a very long and complicated process. So that's not going to go anywhere in the near future. And one more thing is that Schröder benefits personally from this energy dependency with Russia because he has different jobs with big energy companies. He's actually still the the head of the of the board of the Nord Stream company that has this Nord Stream one uh, pipeline and and built a second one that never got into use. And he used to have a job at Rosneft and at Gazprom. These are two very big Russian energy companies that are mainly owned by the Russian state. He has put down some of those functions recently, 
partly because he was threatened to be sanctioned by the European Parliament. <laughs> and um, but yeah, he's still he's still a, a figure and and yeah, he's he's a thorn in the side of the German government for sure. To stay with Schroeder a little bit, even maybe ten years ago, I I always found it strange that that a Chancellor of Germany would leave office and go straight to basically work for huge corporations and the Russian state. And you you, you yeah. can't imagine like Barack Obama deciding to take over Chevron <laughs> or something. It just it just strikes what as being weird. I mean, Donald Trump, sure, maybe, but not the vast majority of politicians. Um, why was there no pushback against Schroeder? Why did the German political opinion or even just the party itself? Why didn't they say like, hey, this doesn't look good? I'm not talking today. I'm talking like in 2006. Well, I mean, they did say this doesn't look good. There was quite a bit of outcry back then, but it was all legal, right? Like there, there is nothing in place that says you can't go and work for, for a corporation. There isn't even anything in place that says you can't work for a foreign government. There is a law, but maybe that didn't apply to him back then. That was that was probably implemented later. That for certain jobs, there's like um, a group of people that asserts like, "How is that okay?" And then, but the worst they can do is give you a waiting period, right? So to say, okay, you can't do that right now. You have to wait two years, say. But I think that law didn't exist uh, back then. And even if it did, like. After a waiting period, he could have done whatever he wanted. So it was controversial back then. But yeah, what are you going to do if he doesn't care that everybody says this is kind of fishy? And he didn't. One last question about Schroeder. Did he have any sense that... I mean, does he have this view that maybe other German politicians had that eventually Russia would become a more integrated, stable, democratic-type, Western-type country? Was this like a goal, or was he really all about the energy coming in and just having a good relationship with Russia, not really caring if they went down the route of autocracy or the route of, of liberal democracies? Well, I mean, that's really hard to tell. I would love to open up his head and look inside. I can't. But um, <laughs> yeah, I think at the time he thought, and, and probably a lot of other people also thought, that Russia would become a country sort of like any other country and a, a reliable partner that you didn't have any any specific problem with, you know, but it didn't really go that way, did it? No. And I, I mentioned that final question I had about Schroeder, because this is something that our next chancellor, Merkel, potentially is also at fault for, misjudging the direction Putin was taking Russia. So um, why don't you talk a little bit about Merkel's uh, relationship to Russia? Of course, it starts with the fact that she was raised in East Germany and uh, speaks Russian, which is quite interesting. Yes. So uh, can you talk a little bit about Chancellor Merkel's relationship towards Russia? 
Well, one important thing about Merkel in general, and this also applies to the relationship with Russia, is she had a very pragmatic style of politics, right? There's not much ideology to Merkel. She tries to be, or she tried to be pragmatic and do what works. And so she somehow thought that with Russia, yes, on the one hand, there are, there are problems and, and quite a number of things happened um, that we can maybe talk about in a, in a moment that weighed heavily on the German-Russian relationship, but she thought, well, I can, I can mention that, I can say that, I can say there's, there's, there are problems, and I can crit criticize things, but at the same time, I can also still have a working relationship with Putin mainly, and with the Russian government, and we can have all these trade relations, and we can buy all the energy, and she she had this sort of unideological way of going about things, and as you mentioned, it's a it's a it's a special sort of relationship because. Merkel is or grew up in Eastern Germany, and she does speak Russian. And Putin, as I think a lot of people know, used to work for the KGB, and he was actually stationed in Germany for a long time. He speaks very good German. He um, made a speech in front of the German Parliament in German. That's quite a long while ago now, but so the two of them, I think, had a had a different way of talking to each other than other German and Russian politicians would have. And after the war in Ukraine started, it took a while for Merkel to to issue a statement on that because I think she, I don't know, I guess she felt a shock as well and she realized, well, maybe... <laughs> all this meeting with this guy and talking to the guy and having all the channels open and, and having all the trade relations going on as nothing ever happened. Maybe that wasn't such a good idea. I want to go back to a point you made much earlier, this, this concept of gratitude towards the USSR that many Germans feel. And I think that's something that lots of people forget when they're criticizing Germany, especially the now a seasoned generation of German politicians who personally were involved in reunification, for example. I think uh, other people don't quite understand that sense of actually we do owe something a little bit to Russia and to people like Putin for allowing Germany to reunite again. And I think it's important just for, for everyone to remember that as just a counterbalancing opinion when we're thinking, oh, why did Germany do all these things and basically empower Putin to build, build his war machine? Well, there are some clear historical reasons why Germans have a slightly different perspective on Russia than other Westerners or like Poland. Yeah, if I, if I can just add to that, this, this sense of gratitude for reunification, there is another factor that, that we have to remember, which is the Second World War, because the, the Red Army, the Soviet Army, liberated parts of Germany. They liberated several of the concentration camps, things like that. And they suffered incredible losses during the war as well. Like more than 20 million people died in the Soviet Union. So that 
caused a lot of guilt on the one hand and then on the other hand again again also gratitude in Germany because we know that the Russians and the other peoples in the in the Soviet Union suffered greatly from this war of aggression that we started and they came and liberated us and so there are these two like historical factors, right? One is the war and how it ended, and then reunification as well. So I think the two G words to remember, guilt and gratitude, are very powerful parts of this relationship. Yeah. I want to stick with Merkel. We're not done with her. And, and there are... Specific violations of diplomatic protocol and good behavior, namely things that Russians or Putin did, even on German territory during Merkel's chancellorship. But in 2014, we have the first, as it were, invasion of Ukraine and the annexation of Crimea. This was interpreted by the U.S. as a huge warning sign and and indeed, that's when we start getting a lot more of the the criticisms of the Nord Stream Two concept, which was yeah. uh, actually completed and built under Merkel's watch. What I mean, what are people thinking about how how she misread the Crimea annexation? Well, I mean, at the time, the Merkel and the German government did say publicly and, and clearly, this is not okay, and this is a violation of international law and all those things. And there were European sanctions against Russia in reaction to this annexation, and Germany was fine with that, was part of this like regime of sanctions. But other than that, nothing really changed. So... Yeah, so on the surface, or, or rhetorically, there was a change, right? There was, there was an outcry, there were, there were strong words, and there were these, these European sanctions. But beyond that, not very much changed, and nothing, nothing changed basically for, for Germany in a way, you know, because the... There were no sanctions against the the energy exports, the Russian energy exports, or anything like that. So we we in Germany could just go on as before economically and with all the other things. So yeah, nothing nothing substantially really changed through that. And, and that takes me to another point that I wanted to mention before we get specifically to the present which is the influence of, of public opinion, of German public opinion on shaping the Russia policy until this current invasion. Uh, Germany, obviously, as you said, has a pacifist streak because of World War II. And of course, there's still this issue of how integrated are East Germans into the country as a whole. How much do they look longingly back at uh, maybe an idealized past under the communist government of East Germany. Uh, and, I, and I think the, the another aspect, uh, those are two important points. I think the third important point that I often think about is how rigid both CDU chancellors and SPD chancellors have been about ensuring 
the economic success of Germany and the average German worker. They are like totally wedded to the idea of keeping food prices low, of everyone having jobs. And we see that through lots of their fiscal policies over many years. You know, the very, people would argue, very strict approach to Greece, Portugal, uh, the so-called pigs, Portugal, Ireland, Greece, and Spain, um, the Greek debt crisis. They were always like, no, we are going to stick to a foreign policy that as it were, privileges our strong economic status and the status yeah. of our people, our workers, who are some of the wealthiest in, in the world. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, that's still um, that's still a, a problem, I would almost say, today, because now we are talking about we need to reduce the energy dependency from Russia, we need to place strong sanctions on Russia. And at the same time, politicians are scared that that's going to hurt people here. And because of this, this like decades long stance that you just described, that's, that's absolutely right, that the the well being and the welfare and the, the good economic development of, of Germany is is a big priority for for governments and has been for a long time yeah i mean now we do feel the effects right energy is unbelievable unbelievably expensive inflation is rising to an extreme and politicians are struggling explaining that to to the german people and and actually going going in front of the camera and saying this is going to be hard on you <laughs> this is this is not something that we're used to you know we're not seeing politicians we're not used to seeing politicians say that to us and um actually one one of the people who is is very good at actually doing this is Habeck, who you mentioned before, the the vice chancellor and the minister of of uh, economy and also climate change is his second the the second part of his portfolio, and he's been very good at saying like this is going to be hard and this is going to be difficult and I'm doing my very best to find other energy sources, but this it's going to be a difficult time and this is something he's been doing very well and actually he's been doing very well in the polls so apparently people are fine with getting some real talk about this yeah good and i'm happy you mentioned now the current coalition government so once again we have uh, schultz as the chancellor and he is the sp the spd politician who's leading the coalition and therefore is chancellor but let's really focus in on this on this this new government i mean What's the general sense? Uh, what are people saying? Are, are they performing well? Is Schultz performing well? Well, the the public of opinion of the like the there's this general polling question of like how content are you with the government basically, right? And it it has been going down a bit. If the pollster is asked specifically about the politics toward the war in Ukraine, support is still strong like a majority of people are still saying yes we are doing we are doing the right things there but um Scholz personally is going down in the polls quite rapidly at the moment and people like Habeck and Baerbock who you also mentioned the foreign minister who is also from the green party they are they are doing much better Scholz has not been 
very present in the public eye since the war started. He had he made a big speech like three yeah, three days after the war started, where he actually spoke about this. This is a Zeitenwende. That's the term that, that he used, and that's been in use since then. So this is the, the times have turned. Everything's different now. We need to boost our military spending, and we need to reduce energy dependency, all this stuff. And he, he made a he made like a TV address after that. But other than that, he's hardly ever present to the public eye right so people are wondering like what is this guy actually doing and why doesn't he explain it better to us whereas like Habeck and Baerbock are more more present and also more open and they say this is hard this is difficult like Baerbock was widely quoted on the day that the war started she said we woke up in a different world today like she was completely shocked and and she she was open about that so, yeah, so like I said, the, the general sense is like 50 to 60 percent of, of people in polls say what we're doing in regards to the war in Ukraine is good, but it's going down and general favorability of the government is also going down and Scholz is among the, one, among the politicians who suffer the most in the polls at the moment. It seems interesting because... You know, this should be a coalition government, while governments should be in lockstep. It does seem strange that the foreign minister Baerbock and then Habeck, the vice chancellor, as it were, taking the lead, being the forward face of the coalition government, at the expense of their leader, <laughs> Schultz. It's, it, again, seems a little bit strange. Yeah, it's. I think it has to do with personality a lot, actually, because Scholz is this. He's a he's a worker, and he he is you know he think he thinks things through a lot, and he and he works on stuff, and he's not a great public speaker, right? He and he doesn't have that much charisma. He's like, yeah, I, ha I have this job. I'm getting the job done, and this is what I do, and I'm 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 pretty like dry about it I, I, I work through things and then I then I say what I want to do and and yeah I think I think it's really it's it's really a question of of personality and what's interesting also is that Baerbock is really young she was born in 1980 so she's 41 years old now and um, so she's a different generation Habeck is kind of in in between he's 52 but um, Scholz is a different generation, right? He's 63. So he, you know, his parents were actually like alive and can remember the Second World War. He was already an adult when reunification happened. That's a different thing. Like when Babak was born, reunification was, was already close and she was still a child when it happened. So... Yeah, I don't know. I've, maybe it's a generational thing as well to how to deal with these crises, but it's a personality question for sure. Well, let's talk about the specifics now of what the government has done and the criticisms of what it should be doing because it has not done them. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that one of the first official announcements that Schultz made was not a small one. I mean, he did announce 100 billion euros, 100 billion euros in spending, yeah. not for Ukraine, for, for Germany, which has been something that 
Germans have been reluctant to do for many years yes. for a number of reasons. Uh, what's the general reaction uh, the German public has to this huge increase in defense spending? Well, it's again, it's in, in general, the the attitude is positive. I guess, or I am sure <laughs> that had anyone announced something like that or even suggested it before the war in Ukraine started, people would have gone nuts. Like people would have said, you're completely crazy. This stupid army, I don't even know what we need it for. But yes, they're helping in the pandemic and they're fighting in weird countries really far away for reasons that I'm not completely sure I understand. But 100 billion euros, are you completely insane? So yeah, this show this goes to show this is a big shift in in politics, in German politics, and also in, in public opinion. So the German army was basically underfunded for a really, really long time. And there were always these stories about the helicopters don't fly, the guns don't shoot straight, we don't have enough boots, like things like that. If you read any reporting on the German army in the past years, that that's what you would find, right? And as you as you said before, there's this sort of pacifist attitude in general. Like most Germans have a have a weird feeling about having an army at all, you know. But now all that, yeah, has has changed, and I mean, it does feel scary to people that there's a war happening in Ukraine because that is not far away from Germany. Like Kiev is like, I think, like 1,200 kilometers maybe from Berlin. It's much closer than, I don't know, Spain or Portugal that people feel much closer to. And everybody has been there on holiday and things like that. But yeah, it's this is close, right? And so now people are scared and people are like, okay, yeah, let's better buy those soldiers some weapons that actually work. Sticking with uh, military and army and weapons supplies, Germany has been criticized by Zelensky, uh, by Ukraine, and by a number of Eastern European countries and others for dragging their feet on aid, military aid, non-lethal aid, lethal yeah. aid, humanitarian aid, all sorts of aid. Do you think that's a fair criticism? Well, I mean, I think the problem is that what they say and what they do sort of diverge in a way. So the German government says every other day, like, we want to support Ukraine and we want to give them weapons and... For a long time, like the, they were like, yes, we're going to send weapons, but maybe not like heavy weaponry that has also changed. So now they say we're going to give them howitzers, we're going to give them tanks, but apparently not much has arrived yet, right? So everyone is now wondering, like, what what is the holdup? What is the delay? And I mean, I know that one problem is that we don't have that much stuff that is in good enough shape to actually pass on to someone else because of this underfunding that I mentioned earlier, right? A lot of a lot of our weapons, like either we we desperately need them so we can 
hold up our commitments that we have given to NATO or they're in disrepair. <laughs> so there was there was a certain phase where they actually had to look for weapons that, that are actually ready to be exported at all. But apparently they are there and still not that much is happening. So I think things have to really get moving now because otherwise they're just making themselves sort of ridiculous because they keep saying we want to help Ukraine, we want to support Ukraine, we want to give them weapons. And if then Zelensky goes on TV and says, well, where are the weapons? <laughs> that doesn't look very good on Scholz and the other members of the German government. Germany has also received criticism from Eastern European EU and NATO allies for its relationship with Russia and still for dragging its feet. You know, a lot of people say every day Germany continues to buy gas because they don't want yes. to pay more for energy. They're supplying weapons to Putin's army to kill Ukrainians. You know, why can't they just say stop? It's a criticism that's coming from many quarters. How How is the government responding to this and explaining it to the German people? Well, they're saying that we're doing the best we can. We're doing it as fast as we can, right? So there are all these different projects now, like, for example, um, we are trying to buy gas from Qatar, which is not such a fantastic partner country in itself. But that's a different story. We are building these these LNG terminals in northern Germany, so that liquefied gas can come into harbors there and then be distributed through the country. We still need to buy build those um, those terminals and we need to build the pipelines for that. But yes, we are starting to do that. And they're trying to push uh, renewable energy as much as possible as well. But all that obviously takes a while to to build. If we were to say today we turn off the gas pipelines from Russia, that would wreak havoc on the German industry for sure. Because, I mean, you have to keep in mind like just how big this dependency is. Like last year, 55% of our gas supplies came from Russia. That is an unbelievable big chunk, right? And 50% of coal came from Russia, 35% of oil imports came from Russia. So, and all of this basically needs to go away now. <laughs> and gas is the most difficult one. So oil, I think Habeck said we might be able to get off of Russian oil by the end of the year or beginning of next year. And coal is also already going down, but gas is a big problem. So they are not ready to, to pull the plug on the gas because the German industry needs it for a lot of things. That, that's not, it's not only for heating, but it's for a really big variety of things. Among them is food production, right? So that's a difficult thing. Prices are already so high. Are you going to make them even higher? How are you going to support poor people through that? It's a, it's a difficult decision. Sticking with uh, politics here, I haven't read a lot. I mean, there have been general, general criticisms uh, from within Germany about 
the decisions made by previous chancellors and previous governments to increase this dependency, despite warnings coming from outside of Germany, Obama and Trump, one area they agreed on was that that Nord Stream uh, was a terrible idea geopolitically. I yeah. think it's strange that like Merkel, for example, and the CDU party aren't going to pay a political price for this. Until I remember that it was Schroeder, the previous chancellor from the SPD, who did this too. So, I mean, there is a problem that at the, the top of German politics, amongst all parties, there was a consensus to do this. No one was really saying, no, we can't do this. So no one can really make a political win out of this, except maybe the Greens. But weren't the Greens and the Schroeder's coalition government? So it's like, all hands are dirty. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Uh, they were in, in Schroeder's coalition, and um, but still, like they are, they at least since then, like during the Merkel years, they were against Nord Stream, right? The Nord Stream one, and then Nord Stream two, which was more controversial because it was only being built during that time. Yeah, it, it's it's true. Everybody has blood on their hands in this regard because. They all they all stuck to this type of politics to say yes we we're gonna trade and we're gonna import all the energy and we're gonna talk to these people and even though even when they do crazy things we are gonna tell them that was a bad move but we're got not gonna have any other major consequences. So I mean when now the Christian Democrats are in the opposition. And when they're now criticizing the social, social Democrats for having been too cozy with Putin, that's a bit weird because their own chancellor was in office until the beginning of December last year, did the same thing. Right. So, so it's always an interesting scenario when something world historic happens and no one can really gain politically from it. Uh, it just shows how right. unified uh, foreign policy thinking was for so many so many years. But let's turn to the future. Obviously, we are, we cannot predict the future. There are some basically three outcomes of the war. One would be capitulation by Zelensky's uh, regime and victory by Putin. Uh, a second would be a complete um, victory by the Ukrainians, however defined, but uh, removing Russian troops from its territory, either pre-2014 or pre-2022 territory. But I think most people say most likely outcome is basically a long conflict along the borders. I mean, is, is Germany going to, to uh, sort of forever keep these sanctions up and agree to the hard sanctions against Russia? Is there still any element left of wanting to go back to that Ostpolitik realism from Willy Brandt in the 1970s? And I, I seem to have heard some people saying, like, we need to live, we, we might need to live with this and actually go back to talking to Putin and trading with him. Interestingly enough, Scholz is still talking to Putin, like, <laughs> every few weeks he talks to him on the phone. And apparently, at least that's what his spokespeople say, tells him, like, 
this war is bad. Withdraw your soldiers. Not that that has any effect on him, but, you know, they're, they're, those channels are still open, apparently, and Scholz is, is determined to, to still talk to him. I don't know. Macron does the same, though. Like, the French president also phones Putin all the time. <laughs> I don't I don't really know where that is supposed to lead, but yeah, I I can't I can't see any going back to to this old approach in the near or even midterm future because this war is is just an escalation that nobody yeah, can go back from right so Scholz always says Russia can't win this war like we can't we can't allow Russia to win this war he doesn't say interestingly enough he doesn't say Ukraine has to win this war but he says Russia cannot win this war we can't let Russia win this war so yeah I do think that they are determined to keep sanctions in place and I mean now that they're working towards energy independence or at least to lower the dependency on Russian energy. I mean, that is happening anyway, right? And if we reach that at some point, why would we then go back to buying all our gas from Russia? That would be really weird. That doesn't make any sense economically as well. So yeah, I, I don't see any going back to being closer to Moscow again. Even even if it happens, like you said, like maybe there will be this outcome that the conflict is drawn out and frozen and and no clear winner is in sight. Even then, I think sanctions will will stay in place and and the relationship to Russia will be cold. So, yes, yeah, so everything did change on February 24th, uh, not only for Ukraine but also for all of Europe, and most, import most importantly for today's conversation for Germany, because this long tradition of dialogue uh, was turned over. And um, after many years of foreign policy consensus on how to engage with Russia, Germany awoke to a new world and now is rethinking its foreign policy. Thank you, Christina. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on again. Yeah, you do a wonderful job explaining these things very clearly for our audience and for me. I'm always much more enlightened after our conversations. Thanks to everyone else for listening to the Transatlanticist Politics Podcast. We'll give you updates on what's going on in Germany and Russia, I'm sure, in the future. The story has not been told to the end. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Just so you know, once again, the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host, not the American Centrum, which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy. Thanks again for listening.